Welcome to the 2022 season of Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This year, we look forward to bringing you a wide range of discussions with leading psychologists and educators to challenge your thinking as clinicians and therapists. Here in Australia in 2022, we are looking forward to the APS College of Clinical Psychologists National Conference in May. So in coming episodes, we'll be chatting to some of the keynote speakers to find out what's in store for us in Brisbane. The conference theme this year is Innovation in Clinical Practice. If you're interested in attending, either in person or virtually, visit the APS website at psychology.org.au. Choose the Education menu where you'll see the link to APS conferences. But first, today's topic is decolonizing clinical psychology. Decolonization is a word that we hear used increasingly often in society and especially in a social justice context. But sometimes it seems to mean different things at different times. So how does it apply to us as clinical psychologists and what can it add to our practice? Our presenter, Dr. Nina Cook, has been wrestling with the concept and contacted Sydney University psychologist and academic Paul Rhodes to help her understand more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, I'm Nina Cook and welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm joined today by Associate Professor Paul Rhodes. Paul is an academic at the University of Sydney, where he teaches family therapy, community-based approaches to psychology, reflective practice, cultural responsiveness, the philosophical basis of therapy models, qualitative methods, critiques of psychopathology and decolonizing psychology. He also runs a clinic at St. Vincent's Hospital, where he specializes in family-based treatments of eating disorders, family therapy for complex problems, and recovery-oriented approaches to eating disorders. I am really pleased to have Paul here to discuss his research and teaching work in decolonizing psychology and to explore how we can take his learning into our clinical practice. Thanks for being here, Paul. No worries. Could you give us a little bit of your history? How did you come to be a clinical psychologist? Yeah, um, that's a big question. In fact, we've done research on that, Narratives of Therapists' Lives, where we've interviewed like people about that story. Very interesting. For myself, um, I can answer it psychodynamically, or but I won't to begin with. That'll be a bit heavy. But um, my my mother was a psychiatric nurse, and my father was a CEO. And I think being an academic in psychology is the perfect blend of those two things, if you like. So, I grew up in the Philippines. I was in, I grew up in seven different countries. In fact, Portugal, Malta, Finland, the Philippines, Singapore. Uh, you know, as an expat kind of life, and I immigrated to Australia at twenty one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I always wanted to be a psychologist. I remember doing psychology in the IB, International Baccalaureate, uh, in year 11 and loving it. Uh, I'd always wanted to be involved in that. Or I wanted to be a psychologist or an artist. And uh, it's funny because I find myself, I am finally now an artist as well. So I, I have developed that in my 50s. So I've kind of um, been able to do both, which I'm very fortunate. <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, I think I, from a very early age, I, I was inculcated into it by what my mother did and what my father did as a combination. And in fact, we have a long tradition of uh, of Christianity in my family tree. And while I'm not a practicing Christian, I know that, you know, my beating heart comes from that family tree, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, from that, that's part of my own cultural background. 
uh, Christianity in Finland, uh, you know, is, 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 has led me to wanting to be involved in the helping professions you know, for all its sins. So thank you for sharing that. I wondered, as we get started, if you could define for our listeners the term decolonizing psychology. Um, it's a very problematic term. I remember um, being in a meeting. Uh, I, I run a group called Psychologists for Social Justice, and in that meeting, we have some um, Aboriginal members, and they were laughing <laughs> and saying that they spoke to some elders, and they were laughing about the term. She said, "The only way we can decolonize is if you bastards go back and <laughs> go back where you came from." <laughs> so, yeah, it's a ridiculous term. Um, because uh, you can't decolonize something that's been colonized, you know. Um, but um, it, decolonization does capture some very important principles, you know, um, and, and it, it, it alludes to a movement that's way bigger than psychology, you know, in, in society that's trying to recognize the damage and trauma, the, the, the things that were done by colonialism, and how that colonial enterprise is still ongoing. So, you know, um, the idea that, you know, white Western uh, middle-class knowledge is privileged over other forms of knowledge that we have, a, uh, Santos calls it epistemicide, that it's not, there was a genocide with colonialism, but there was also a, an epistemicide, a genocide of epistemology or knowledge, where some knowledge is erased and other knowledge is privileged. And that's what I'm interested in, in terms of decolonization, that, you know, asking the question, is psychology a complicit in an ongoing process of epistemicide? In other words, you know, what kinds of knowledges are excluded from white Western psychology, you know? Um, so for me, decolonization conjures up those issues and it's a label that everybody understands, so I use it, you know, but but it's problematic, obviously. It's kind of ridiculous. So. <laughs> what has the term captured in Australia in terms of that movement within psychology? What does it tend to relate to here, even if it's an imperfect term? What kinds of actions and changes? Um, it, it, it's not a mainstream. It's not in the mainstream. We haven't, as a field, we have not embraced that idea hardly at all. Um, we're still promoting individualism, cognitive individualism. We're still tied up in the neoliberal agenda. We're still part of the industry. You know, we haven't really questioned those things at a wider scale. It's very myop myopic, you know, um, our view. To me, the leaders in the decolonization of psychology are Aboriginal leaders. You know, the Pat Dudgeon, for example, the social and emotional well-being movement. Uh, it's the Aboriginal leaders that are at the forefront of decolonizing psychology and the white leaders that are, to a large degree, living in ignorance of, that, of the implications. And perhaps we'll talk later about the implications for white psychologists, but there are some very significant ones, even if you don't work with Aboriginal people. Um, but, um, you know, the idea is a profession. I mean, I think our profession, its problem is we, we, we're decontextualized historically we think that what we're doing now has always been the case and has always been dominant and that, that the cognitive metaphor for distress has always been the primary metaphor. It, that's not the case, but we don't study history in our programs. We don't realise that it all started 
with the cognitive revolution in the 60s and 70s where, you know, that was where our field kind of, um, well, not began, but that's where the CoCVT and its all of its uh, brothers and sisters began. But prior to the cognitive revolution, there were many other traditions, you know, and even during the cognitive revolution in the margins, there's been multiple other traditions of, of uh, what it means to do therapy. And so, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we don't ask these questions, because we're in a discourse community, a bubble, an ep- epistemological bubble where we can't see outside of uh, the cognitive revolution. We, we can't see what else is going on and we can't question the paradigm. So most of our research is, uh, is, is supporting the paradigm, not attempting to look at other things outside of that paradigm. And, and decolonization is something that, that does that, especially around issues of colonization and, uh, and um, you know, Aboriginal history and things like that. Um, so I hope I'm answering your question. But uh, in terms of Australia, I think we can only say really probably the Aboriginal uh, leaders, maybe narrative therapists and family therapists, are, are do, are, they're already well along this track. It's, it's, it's psychologists and clinical psychologists, uh, excluding Aboriginal clinical psychologists, that are not taking this question seriously. Why do you think... I mean, shall we call it decolonization for the yeah, purposes yeah. For the of this discussion? Yeah, for the sake of convenience, yeah. yeah, yeah. Acknowledging mm-hmm. that it's it's not perfect for sure. Yeah. Um, why do you think decolonization is important to the study and practice of clinical psychology? I guess I, I've uh, I, what I've learned from uh, my engagement with Aboriginal knowledge systems, learning from Aboriginal leaders and trying to understand um, Aboriginal psychology is that um, it has implications for our field as a, as a whole, <laughs> just like Aboriginal knowledge has implications for our society as a whole. So, for example, if you look at social and emotional well-being, it has the self at the, at the core of the model, but men, distress is also understood as not, not just related to cognition, but related to relationships, to kin, to place, uh, to spirituality. Uh, you know, and, and it's a much more wider lens when we look at distress. Like clinical psychology tends to look at distress in a very individualistic Western way. But distress can be so many other things. It can be, well, family related, kin related, culture related, colonialism, you know, the the, the, the removal, you know, the, the stolen generation, for example, you know, uh, creates a wound, uh, you know, that, that um, is part of distress. But that all these things are also something that can challenge your white uh, psychologists and clients. That why is place-based emotion and place-based attachment not considered important when we're trying to conceptualize and formulate distress? For example, you know, I mean, we're in the climate crisis. Why is that not considered part of our formulation of young people's distress? Because we, you know, we, we're so stuck on cognitions and you know, and individualism that we can't allow that. And it, to me, uh, decolonization, Aboriginal knowledge opens up the field so beautifully for us to consider things beyond the individual. Because colonization was, you know, and individualism, you know, were tied together, you know. So for me, it goes, decolonization goes a lot further than saying, let's understand Aboriginal, what, what you're going to do if you work with Aboriginal peoples. It's not about that at all. It's about saying, you know, let's learn deeply from Aboriginal knowledge and, have, and, and let's learn... Um, what colonization is and what it means and then we can reconfigure the whole field to be much wider you know much much wider than this kind of linear paradigm that we have because uh, family you know relationships kin culture place 
are all part of understanding mental health. You know, that's my view. So it's about it's really a quite a radical. Uh, I, uh, a ra- it has radical implications, and I think that's why people are not picking it up because it's so overwhelming, and because there's some fear about like what will it mean for our field? You know, if we if we start to really open up our, our conceptualization of what distress is to include all of these factors. We're, we're concerned about losing our identity, perhaps, you know, as well. We're not going to become social workers, are we, kind of thing, you know? <laughs> I was thinking as a family therapist, I think you've you've got a foot in the door there in that systemic contextual kind of understanding of people's yeah. distress. Um, I wonder if that's been part of... You know, you've already been a little bit more open, if that makes sense, to looking beyond the individual in terms of distress. Well, I mean, I've got a long-term, decades-long commitment to family therapy. You know, my my heritage and lineage is in family therapy. You know, and so yeah, um, family therapy. You know, its core principle is that the, the distress is relational. You know, identity is relational. Supporting people with distress is also done relationally. You know, that we don't. You know that. Um, so yeah, that, and, and, you know, the, the family therapy tra- tradition is a Western tradition that goes back to Gregory Bates and, and, you know, and cybernetics and, and actually interestingly, at the same time as the cognitive revolution, we had the cybernetic systemic revolution going on as well, but in psychology, it was pushed into the margins, almost disappeared. <laughs> it was disappeared like a, like a South American dictator disappears people, you know, <laughs> Cog- <laughs> the cognitive revolution disappeared family therapy within psychology never to be seen again you know i mean um it, it pops up every now and then in a, in a in a manualized form where the spirit of it has been killed you know we're willing to kind of bring it in if we kill the spirit of it but family therapies is a creative dynamic living liberal uh you know activist tradition um that you know won't be tamed you know <laughs> and so i think part of this that um Clinical psychology tends to tame things, like it tames them and manualizes them, and and also monetizes them, uh, and so we don't want to be part of it. You know, <laughs> that's the problem. It's a two-way problem that, you know, you you, you don't we don't want to industrialize something uh, a field like family therapy and industrialize it, um, and and this is the tension that clinical psychology is brilliant actually at disseminating, providing evidence for methods like look what it's done with a buddhism for example you know like it's got the good thing is it's out there in every nook and cranny of the world of, of australia you know those principles are being used to help and heal people that, that's wonderful and i'm not against it at all but on the flip side it's become industrialized and monetized which is problematic so i'm not anti cbt or, or its brothers and sisters i'm i use them myself what i'm anti is the dominance of them uh, they shouldn't be dominant. They should be one part of the puzzle, just like in social and emotional well-being, where the self is one part. It should be one part, and that part, all the other parts should be respected and given room. That's the problem with, I think, our field. All the, you know, CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, DBT schema, they're all great, and they're all useful, and they all help, you know, a lot of people get healed and uh, supported through them. But But it's just one wedge, you know? one piece of the pizza you know <laughs> so that, that i think that's where that's what to me what decolonization means you know let's open up away from western individualism and look at other 
um, epistemologies, Aboriginal epistemologies. And Santos says, what about epistemologies of the South? It's always epistemologies of the North that get, uh, you know, that are predominant and epistemologies of the South. So, for example, we don't know anything about the psychology of, of, um, of South America. Why don't we know? Psycho South America has a deep tradition within psychology. And, and when students are not taught anything because it's liberation psychology, because it's it's where politics and psychotherapy come together and we, we, we can't handle it. You know, it's not evidence based practice to have uh, affirming politically oriented, liberative type of therapies. But they're very important for people like refugees, people who've been traumatized, you know, uh, people who have suffered from uh, abuse, you know, uh, uh, People who've come from countries where, uh, you know, there's been uh, um, torture, like, you know, there's nothing wrong with politicizing therapy. Even with anorexia nervosa, it's a, it's a feminist problem, right? So why, but why don't we not talk about feminism in clinical psychology? I've never, it's, it's not, it's excluded. So these are all the implications of decolonization. They're massive, you know, like mm. we're opening up ourselves to, to activist forms of knowledge, you know, um, but rather than the, I mean, we're essentially a conservative field. Um, what, yeah. what have you been finding in your research in this area? Um, we've done, I've done some direct, we've done some direct research on decolonization. Uh, one really great project we did was we, we went around the world and found clinical psychology programs that have already done this work. And we interviewed the academic leaders about how they did it and what was involved. And so it included a, uh, Latin America, England, Chicago. And Chicago is where I learned a lot of this uh, because I went on sabbatical to uh, one of their clinical psych training universities, you know, psych D uh, universities, and, and they will fully embrace this. Uh, you know, so, yeah, we interviewed all of these different academics uh, who, led, who led, led the way in terms of decolonizing their programs about how they'd done it. And there were so many interesting findings uh, one of them was that much of it was student-led, that the students had had enough, you know. <laughs> you know, they, they burned down, they, they, they pull over statues in, in some places. Here they were pulling down the curriculum, you know. <laughs> like, uh, and, uh, and the other was that the, the academics themselves were on a personal journey. You know, it has to, they have to have a personal reckoning with issues of colonialism if you're going to reform the curriculum. You don't just stick things in the curriculum, but it's a personal reckoning with issues of, you know, we live in Australia. We we live on unceded land. We you know we we, uh, we this country doesn't belong to us. It was stolen. What are the implications of that? Uh, you know, for the type of psychology we want to do. You know, you know, because we live with it. This country has a wound in it. You know, the wound of colonization. It's the It's the heart trauma of the country was when we arrived. You know, it damaged us as well because of what we did. So. How can you be a psychologist and not think about that? Well, you've got this staring big wound at the heart of the country and the psychologist can pretend it doesn't exist. Like we're not just psychologists in the therapy room. We have to be psychologists when we read the newspaper and we have to be psychologists when we, when, when we, when we, um, when we vote. Um, to me, that's, that's the issue that we, how can we not see these things, you know, um, and, and talk about them? I mean, I believe we should be scientist practitioners and activist practitioners together and that those two together, that's where you get the balance right. You know, if you if you think of issues of decolonization. So it sounds like there's challenges on lots of different levels to 
what might be our usual practice. So the idea of opening up our clinical interventions themselves to include more context around the individual to think in perhaps what is a more, you know, maybe borrowing from Aboriginal psychology to see a person as part of their family group, their environment, but Mm. then also challenging ourselves to uh, consider, you know, how we came across our beliefs and knowledge and whether we've been um, stuck in one way of thinking, whether we can open ourselves up to other ways of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're the the issue there is what you're talking about is reflecting on our own ways of thinking is one of the implications of decolonization, and this is why cultural competence as, a, as an idea is becoming old hat. You know, like I think it's pretty common knowledge that teaching cultural competence, i.e., teaching white people to be great at working with different cultures, is 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 a racist idea. And actually looking inward at your own cultural biases and values, strengths and vulnerabilities, history and and where you come from is more valid. That you become more transparent about your own beliefs as you engage with other people's beliefs is a more culturally safe way to approach cultural responsiveness, cultural humility, not cultural competence. Could could we talk a little bit more about that? Because I would say, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm personally fairly invested in being non-racist as I, as, as yeah. much as I can be but I was not actually aware that cultural competence had had kind of fallen out of favor so I wonder for our listeners could you say a little bit more about the problem with the idea of cultural competence and why that might come from a racist foundation well I mean it I, well, I think my view is that you know it's we're all racist I mean you know we're, <laughs> you know like that that's the that's the where starting point I've made terrible mistakes and awful I can list them if you're interested of mistakes I've made in this area and it's littered with them but I actually believe that cultural humility is about saying to yourself I want to be I want to make mistakes I want to be accountable for those mistakes and I want to go on that journey of humility which is I'm going to screw up a million times can you please help me that's I have a colleague who I adore who has cultural supervision, you know? So her supervisors is for cultural safety, yeah, not clinical. I mean, Trisha has clinical supervision as well, but that's, that, that's cultural humility. But cultural competence is to say, I actually remember myself when I was training in the 1980s, like picking up a book on how to work, you know, Asian psychology, so I can figure out if I have clients from China, like what is their culture and how do I work with them? And what happens is you go into stereotypes, right? Saving face and all that rubbish. It's laughable. You know, it, it, it's more about saying this, these, are the, these are the weaknesses and strengths in my own personal culture. And I'm curious about yours. Let, let's do therapy where we have a dialogue about those two things. And I'm humble enough to accept that my view is, is not correct view. It's just a view, you know? How do we become differentiated from our own values and, and, and recognize they're all potential biases? To be honest, our young people, our students are far further along it than we are. For them, it's common sense, you know, like <laughs> some of them. I mean, we do have some privileged students who haven't, but many students are already, this is not news to them. We are behind them, you know, our generation of psychologists. We, we, um, we've got some catching up to do. At the moment, there's a risk that we're creating psychologists to go and work in private practice, you know, that to take them from privileged 
uh, homes and put them into privileged practices in communities. And that I don't want that. Do we want to be part of that? Like, is that all we're about? We have a lot more to offer the nation than that. You know, then let's just foster the industry. Well, what about all the problems in our nation? A lot of them are psychological. You know, like, uh, so why can't we be gearing our profession towards that as well? Well, I'm sure we are doing it. You know, we are doing it in many areas. I mean, I, I saw in this in the couple of years ago there was a um, special issue of Australian psychologists on Indigenous psychology. You know, we're doing heaps. You know, there, there was an apology by the APS. You know, we are. This is already happening. You know, I think it is. We we have we are at a tipping point, and we have already perhaps tipped. You know, a little. Um, but this, but it, but it's still a lot. Of, there's a lot to do. Sorry, go on. What. What changes have you seen at the University of Sydney since becoming involved in this movement? Within our clinical program, we for the last four or five years, we've been trying to 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 do things, uh, you know, to start the process. Uh, so, for example, uh, we have people who come in and were paid to teach um, Aboriginal psychology, social and emotional well-being, community psychology, family therapy. So that's part of our curriculum. Could you, Paul? Could you say more about social and emotional well-being, just for our listeners that might know, not know what that incorporates? What uh, kind well, of... there's, you just look, uh, look. At, it's just, a, it's a conceptual model uh, for the formulation of uh, distress. It's developed by Pat Delgin. Just look up Pat Delgin SEWB, and you'll find everything. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, we've done that. We we we've we've organised our admissions so that um, Gadigal students, you know, uh, are given. Um, uh, more access to interviews. Uh, so we have ha- we have had four Gadigal students in the last two years. So that's uh, you know ten percent of our cohort of have, have Aboriginal are, are Aboriginal. So that's good. We're trying. What we're trying to do in the school is start from undergrad and go through to PhD to have like uh, to have a, a kind of a roadmap for how how Aboriginal knowledge can go through the program and how an Aboriginal student might be supported to go through the program. Um, so we're also um, engaging with um, uh, John Gilroy, who's a, a deputy head of research, Aboriginal research in Sydney Uni, to develop a, a grant where we can employ Aboriginal PhD students within psychology. So the things we're doing are reasonably small, uh, but we're trying to spread them across, uh, you know, from beginning to end. So I, you've got to think, this is a 10 to 20 year project, you know, like it's a, you know, you've got to have a lot of people doing things over a long time to make cultural change. It's very easy if you're thinking, oh, okay, we want to be, we want to do some decolonization. We want to be more culturally safe in our program to think, oh, we'll just stick a few lectures in, you know, and we'll put up a acknowledgement of country every time, you know, that's not it. It's got to be cultural change. And that's a lot of people doing 10 years work, you know, like, it's you know that because the hist we forget psychology has a history, you know the history of psychology is decades, hundreds of years, hundred years old. So if we're going to make significant change, it's going to take ten to twenty years. Um, so I think that's the kind of vision you have to have um, if you're going to because the cult the changes needed are so significant. Just to kind of uh, reflect on what the the outcome of those changes might ideally be. Mm. It's a picture of a more kind of respectful, integrated um, program where 
we're using our psychological understanding of human beings to ensure that everyone in our community is psychologically as well as they can be. Um, <laughs> well, I could I can tell you what Chicago uh, Psych D program looks like, and then I'll tell you how I think it could be in the future for ours. Can I yeah, do that? That would be great. So, in the psych in the Psych D program at the Chicago Professional School of Psychology, um, number one, there's not just one stream. There's five streams. You can choose cognitive stream, the systemic stream, the community psychology stream, and the psychodynamic existential. So you can choose. There's already multiple discourses. There's not one dominant discourse. There's five discourses available to you. And so you can choose. There's multiple streams of knowledge that are available to you. That's radical for us already, right? But it's pretty common in America. So, I mean... In Chicago, you would have, uh, you know, a black student from the, from the south, south of the city uh, who's experienced uh, uh, a lot of challenging events in their life and who want to give back, you know. And so they might want to come and learn the community psych part, but understand some of the cognitive work as well. So it would be ridiculous for them just to come and learn CBT and then go back to their their communities in South Chicago and use that for helping to, um, you know, we're trying to help their community, you know, like it's not appropriate. It's not, uh, so, and all the students are expected to do their studies, but also engage in some form of social activist work that's psychologically related as one of the parts of their units of study. Uh, the uh, the makeup of students isn't, that is uh, mixed, very, very multicultural mix. Uh, um, there are there's affirmative action admissions and affirmative action for enrol- for for the employment of academics. So uh, you know you you have a, a affirmative action is not something that we do within clinical psych training programs, as far as I understand. So what I mean in a in an ideal world we would have that's what we would have I believe uh, we we would employ and and to be to be fair we have just developed and Caroline Hunt's to be thanked for this. Uh, the first Aboriginal identified academic tenured position within clinical psychology. So that position is now there and we'll be looking for someone soon. So that, to me, that's a major step forward. It's not about saying, oh, you know, CBT's time is over. No, it's about saying, great, you know, and it's not anti-scientist evidence-based practice. It's supportive of all those things, but we want to widen the lens. We want to welcome other forms of knowledge and, and other types of students and other clients, <laughs> other types of practices. And when I practices with a small P and a big P, and, and there's plenty of evidence-based practice in family therapy and community psychology. You know, it's not like there's no evidence. We're just not interested. So that it's, um, it, it, we don't want to abandon the good things, you know, we, we, about our field. It's very strong, but we want to expand it. And I think, I think actually, if you were to put the muscle of evidence-based practice behind family therapy and community psychology, the muscle that we have, that, uh, it would be remarkable, you know, because clinical psychology has this amazing capacity, this amazing evidence-based muscle that it uses to great effect. But if it was, to, if we could put that behind some of the things I've been talking about, we would do, we would do a lot of good. You're listening to Clinically Thinking, and now a word from our sponsor. If you're an Australian clinical psychologist, the APS College of Clinical Psychologists is here to support you and help grow your skills. The college is the biggest group representing clinpsychs in the country 
and is active in influencing health policy at both state and federal levels. Members enjoy cheaper or free access to a wealth of CPD opportunities, including webinars, seminars, conferences, training, and online peer supervision groups, as well as the opportunity to network and collaborate with the most experienced ClinSarks in Australia. Join us. Together, our voice is stronger, and we can help bring about better mental health outcomes for all Australians. To find out more about the college, visit the APS website or click the link on the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. And now, back to the show. What changes have you experienced personally along this journey, Paul? Um, oh, my goodness. So, uh, I mean, I... <laughs> I, 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 you've probably noticed I'm an, a pommy white guy from, uh, you know, who immigrated from England. Uh, I grew up in the Philippines. Uh, my dad was there, like, running a uh, factory uh, making garments. So I, I'm really the colonial boy, you know. And my other part of my heritage is Finnish, so it just can't get more Western <laughs> white than me. I'm also 57 years old, heterosexual, you know. I, I mean, I'm ridiculous so yeah i i'm a colonial boy in that regard and and uh, and the thing on a personal level what's been important for me is to put myself in places where i can learn you know where i can learn things um that i know i don't know you know and uh, so for example uh, going to chicago seeing how something can be done so differently was very very challenging i couldn't sleep after i went to see that program i couldn't believe it you know that i i I, what you encountered oh my god you can do it like this you're allowed to do it like this and i think inside myself there was always this kind of super ego that told me you have to be this kind of person to be a clinical psychologist and you have to do things this way and i think that is something that's very strong in our field a conservatism around identity that runs very deep we've trained students to do great practice and to be great researchers, but we haven't trained them to be critical thinkers. And we haven't trained them interdisciplinarily. They haven't learned sociology and politics and philosophy. And I think this is an issue that um, therapy for me was dealing with that voice, you know, and, and dealing with that voice and questioning and figuring out where it came from and silencing it and saying, no, I'm not going to be that. I want to, you know, it's important that we think wider. So. I'm part of an Australian Research Council Discovery Grant where we're looking at the history of community psychiatry and we're interviewing people from the 60s. And I interviewed one guy last year called Brian Staggle, and he's a psychiatrist, very well known in Melbourne. Uh, He got an AOM recently and I just wrote a piece yesterday about him um, because of how remarkable he was. And he changed the mental health system in in Victoria and, and introduced community mental health for the first time ever in the 1970s and 80s. And he said to me, I love history and literature more than I love psychiatry, you know. (laughs) And he said, I I like sociology and anthropology and cybernetics. It allowed him to think outside the box, you know, and think critically about his own field and then expand it. And I think that's the problem with our training is it's it's very, uh, you know, we we, we need uh, psychology students to engage with other fields outside of the sciences. You see... Psychology should be a science, but um, without access to the humanities, we're dehumanizing the field. You know, <laughs> you know like that the students are coming and finishing psychology and they've never read sociology or, 
or, or they've, they've never engaged with social justice issues or, or they don't know who Foucault is because they've come through science. And I'm not saying we shouldn't come through science, but I'm saying that, you know, that they need a wider training in the humanities if they're going to engage with these issues because science is very powerful and important, but it can become an intellectual stranglehold as well. You know, if you can't think outside of that box, if you can't, you can question the research, but you don't know how to question the paradigm. And that's where I think our students are at a loss and where we're behind some of the other professions like social work, you know. I mean, social work, we could have a talk about that, but I think we have strengths and weaknesses when we compare ourselves to social work. But but I do think that's part of the issue as well as the lack of access to the humanities. I mean, you did ask me about my personal uh, side of things, but I mean, the personal story has also been one, and I get very personal here, of uh, coming to terms with my own family history, particularly my father, you know, who was the CEO of a um, multinational company that ran garment manufacturing businesses in Asia, you know, and, and trying to ask, and, and I've had an enormous amount of privilege because of the money he earned doing that. That's something that I've had to, that every time I've gotten involved in this movement, my father's voice, my father's there looking at me and I, and, uh, I have to question him and question the way that the choices he made in life, you know, around the type of work he did and his ethics. So you could argue I'm paying back the sins of the father, you know, like um, with this with this endeavor. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's probably true. Mm. There is a component of looking at ourselves that can be really aversive, and you know, perhaps if we have. <laughs> a really powerful paradigm that we kind of are trying to keep ourselves within. Um, perhaps that's more comfortable than than looking at ourselves as an as an entity, as a part of kind of therapeutic processes or the way we engage with our clients and with community. Yeah. So like the blind leading the blind. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do a lot of work with young people and, um, you know, I do all, I do systemic family therapy and I do some CBT and I do, you know, standard therapy, but there comes a point in your relationship with a young person where they want a little more than that. And uh, so, for example, young, young women with anorexia nervosa, you know, we do all the family-based treatment and all, all the evidence-based practice, but there comes a time in their recovery where they want to know why, what, what happened. They want to know why, why, why do so many women have anorexia nervosa? Like, what happened to me? Why did I have it? And um, that's where you need to know that, well, it's not, so, it's not because there's something wrong with you and your personality. It's that it, it, it's there's something wrong with society that's created that perfectionism and compulsive compliance in young women, you know, especially around the ownership of their bodies by other people. And I, I think it's important that we can have those conversations with young people. Oh, there's a massive generation gap. Young people need to be, need, need to, you know, they're already thinking like that, you know. <laughs> so they go and see a blind psychologist who doesn't know how to think about society and they're going to be disillusioned, you know. What do you think might be some first steps for people who want to start to investigate social justice issues or, you know, being in Australia, perhaps some of the decolonisation ideas around uh history um with aboriginal people Mm. well take the time 
pay respects to Aboriginal knowledge and go and read what they're mm-hmm. doing. You know, it's simple. Just pick up the special issue, the Australian psychologist on Indigenous psychology and read it. Um, that's the starting point. Um, but, you know, much wider than that, you know, invite yourself on a personal journey of learning and educating yourself around it, learning about history. A lot of people already know this. One of the things that I found very interesting in, in myself too is that I had this in my heart and soul and I had my profession and I never brought them together. <laughs> and I actually know there are a lot of psychologists who I've met who in their private life will, will you know, will pro- go to protests or they, they're, they're, they're very activists and then in their professional life they're very conservative. And actually once they realise that actually they can in- be an integrated, whole, fully embodied person that, that where it all blends together, they're liberated and they become fully embodied therapists, you know, who are a whole people, uh, not just like technicians. So I think, um, you know, it's not like there's a cookbook for how to do it. It's more about beginning the journey. I mean, a cliche I could read, you know, say, you know, read poetry or, you know, <laughs> like, you know, Laura, but it's not a cliche. It's really a, a, a lifelong commitment, you know, to say, um, what kind of a psychologist do you want to be? Uh, you want to be a technician in a private practice or you want to be someone who who knows all those things and has taken responsibility for learning evidence-based practice and is highly skilled but is also passionate you know and in touch with their own values and is working in Australia at this time in our history you know uh, think about well right now you know we're in a pandemic the climate crisis is looming that uh, this is the context in which we're doing our work and that needs to be the we need to understand the history of colonialism the history of climate the history of psychology how it's been implicated in that and to really practice as full people you know and to meet our clients as full people as well um yeah i mean i don't know that's my view i, feel, I don't I have to be careful not to be preaching but <laughs> but I, i'm quite passionate about it um well i might ask then let's see where this goes i know there's no cookbook but i will yeah. admit that i wanted to do a podcast uh somewhere around aboriginal mental health because i felt mm-hmm. during the most recent black lives matter movement um fairly helpless I did go to protests and I started to think about how I could contribute somewhere to Aboriginal mental health Um, but at the end of the day I'm still working in the private practice so am I by the way and you know after some years of uh, working in a in a bulk build kind of way you know that's no longer something that our uh our kind of collective mental health can cope with, and we, you know we're now a, you know we're now a practice where people need to pay to come and see us. And I wonder how, mm-hmm. when you were speaking before about kind of being a fully embodied therapist, I just was thinking about what that might look like in this context. You know, is it being aware and, and still doing the protest and um, and then still? I don't think it's about protest. It's not about protesting or anything like that. I mean, I think. Um... I mean, look, I'm, I'm in a private practice at St. Vincent's Hospital. You know, it feeds the eastern suburbs. You know, I specialise in eating disorders. I have privileged clients, um, some. I mean, but my the way it's affected my practice there is that it started, I started to realise that it was that very privilege. You know, 
and that uh, the culture of the eastern suburbs, you know, that was causing part of the pathology. I mean, I started to realize uh, these young people, blind to what's going on around them, you know, the the private schools, the the driven nature of it, the the the, the feminist free zone of you know of of, of the schools. The, they were coming to see a therapist, you know, for anorexia nervosa, but it was so much bigger than that, that the, it was a cultural issue as well as a psychological issue. That's what Abor- reading Aboriginal knowledge taught uh-huh. me. I read it and go, it just taught me culture, culture, culture is important, place is important. So a young person with anorexia nervosa who comes to see me, I need to consider place and culture and think, what culture do you come from? What's the, what's the eastern suburbs like? I'm a barometer of the city in that regard. You know, I'm a barometer of the eastern suburbs when I see this person. It's like, it's not your fault. I'm not going to pathologize right. you. You know, I'm going to help you. Part of my job is to raise your raise your consciousness culturally as well as do all the normal therapy stuff. That's what the impact it had on me, reading all that stuff. I didn't mean I got moved to Alice Springs. and I mean, I'm not, I'm not wanted there. You know? <laughs> I mean, what do I know? I mean, what it meant was it was a challenge to me to learn humbly from what they were doing to say, what well, what's the impact on me? And that's what happened, that I started to to think along those terms with my clients, you know, and, and they benefited from it and I have Aboriginal knowledge systems too. It's it's not something I predicted. It's so unusual that that's what would happen. But, you know, and the other thing is it got me involved in um, climate distress research because I, I, I live in Wentworth Falls. I... We had the bushfires. Um, I was just learning, you know, starting to learn about Aboriginal knowledge, and and it suddenly dawned on me. Oh my God! Like uh, we don't climate distress. You know, my own climate distress is acute. What's it like in the young people coming to see me in the clinic? And when you ask them, it's you, it's just that we don't ask them. I mean, they're saying I'm never going to have children. Part of my depression is what's the point? What's the point? There's no future, and that that's a different type of depression than what we're used to because it's actually possibly true, you know. It's not catastrophizing. They're the ones who are realistic and we're the ones minimizing, you know. So, you know, so that's another effect that it started. I got to think about place uh, because I know that part of the social and emotional well-being uh, framework has place in it. I got to think about what's place got to do. What is Australian place? What's happening during the bushfires? What are young people experiencing in their place-based emotions, not just their cognitions, you know. So they had cult, culture and place. I started to create that social and emotional well-being pie in the work I was doing in the eastern suburbs. Uh, it was surprising. I didn't do it on purpose. It just happened by osmosis. It was. It actually changed my practice, and I was able to include a wider lens while still doing the work I was doing before. I've done randomized trials on family-based treatment for anorexia nervosa, and I believe in it strongly. You know, but it's not always. It's not not sufficient. There's more. So. Expose yourself to these ideas and see what happens. It's exciting. You know, it's liberative. It actually does things to your work that are, it's not just your clients that get healed, but you too, you know. <laughs> you know, it's I, that little voice in my head, you know, that little horrible voice, you know, you've got to do everything the right way. You can't be creative. That's that, Destroying that has set me free, you know, emotionally as a therapist. It's about something emerging that you're, that's unexpected, you know, rather than, at being a linear thing that you can do, you know, that you can create a, you know, that you can create a approach with. It's a deeply personal matter and, uh, and uh, it has surprising emergent results, you know, 
Uh, I do. Yeah, I do like what you're saying. Those. I like what you're saying there. In that, you know, I had this idea. You know, I really must do something out there in the world. Um, but really, this is a process of continuing to look inwards, uh, addressing my own assumptions and limitations, and then from that more open position, helping people in a different way within my current context. It doesn't need to be some kind of um, big shake-up. No, I mean, I mean, God, God, God forbid all the white psychologists went out to Aboriginal communities. We have another colonisation well, going on. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we wouldn't be decolonising, we'd be double colonising. I mean, we need to change, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The only thing, the things that we can do for our Aboriginal uh, colleagues and is open the doors of academia and our practices. I mean, you know, we have to open those doors of power and let them in. And if they're in there, we, have, you know, learn from them i mean that's it you know it's not about us doing stuff it's about us stop doing stuff you know we open the doors and let's share our power that we have uh so i don't think it's about us becoming a bunch of do-gooders you know like you know out of guilt like we don't that's not the issue it's it's more than that As, uh, to me it's those two things which is sharing our power and uh, be letting ourselves be influenced in our own world in our own little world and obviously um yeah speaking out uh, like there are some of my colleagues are I'm quite conservative within my own tribe there are colleagues of mine who just want to burn everything down and I don't believe in that I don't believe in that at all because I think there are good there are great things going on in our field you know as well and they need to be respected and acknowledged and there are people who are doing really beautiful good work um, it's not about trashing something it's about expanding it out Paul I think that's a really lovely place for us to stop our discussion. I want to thank you so much for being here today and talking through all of this with me. It's been a real pleasure. No worries. You can find Clinically Thinking on all the popular podcast platforms. If you've enjoyed the show by Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a favourable review. Reviews help other people find the show and tell new listeners what to expect. You can find more information about our guests or chat about the program at the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 